Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Podcentrics, a pregnancy pod. I'm Kayla. And I'm Evan. And welcome. This is episode what? Five today, I think. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I've lost track now. <laughs> um, and this is our episode on labour and birth. Yeah, so firstly, we're going to talk through a medical disclaimer. So again, this podcast does not constitute as medical advice. If you have any queries, please make sure you see your healthcare provider. Great. So I suppose we'll be starting this episode a little bit differently today. Um, And so we're going to start off with a case. So firstly, how was your week, Evan? Because we in Melbourne have just gone through a five-day lockdown. Yeah, look, to be honest, um, I didn't really feel this lockdown as badly as I did the other one. Yeah. Um, Mainly probably because I've been on placement all week, so I couldn't really go out anyway. Um, But I can definitely feel, um, you know, for some of the businesses around Melbourne, especially having to close around Valentine's Day, that would have been a big loss for them. Yeah. But I'm also glad that we had, you know, a really swift health response and we were able to, you know, crush um, any spread of the virus, which is amazing. Yeah. Look, for me personally, it did go really quickly. Um, I was fortunate enough to work through lockdown, um, one of the very fortunate ones. But yeah, intense, intense, intense five days. Yeah. So, yeah, as everyone was saying before, we are going to do things a little bit differently this week. So we are going to go through a case study before we talk through some content surrounding labour and birth. So, Evan, did you want to start off with a case study? Yeah, sure. So Lucy is a 25-year-old G1P0 who is 38 plus three weeks. She has had an uneventful pregnancy and she presents to the labour ward with her wife, Anna, with three to five contractions every 10 minutes. She has a VE which shows that she is 4 centimeters dilated with 40% effacement. The baby is orientated OA and is at station 0. Yep, so there is a lot going on here. We understand that and our aim in this episode is that by the end of it, you'll hopefully be able to understand you'll be able to understand everything that is going on in this case study. That is the aim of the episode. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Let's see how well we go. And I suppose firstly just starting, we really wanted to go through some kind of basic things that every woman should expect when she's going to the labor ward especially if it's the first time because it can be quite daunting so i suppose some of the things that we want to talk about is one of the things that a woman can definitely expect for the majority of the labor process is that she'll have one-to-one midwife care Um, another really important thing is that she should have a support person present Um, and this person will really be there for two reasons Um, one will be for emotional support um, but also for things like you know running around getting water Um, And even being the person to mop her brow if she's getting hot or is sweating, um, that's really what the support person is there for. Another thing that should be expected is appropriate analgesia as per mum's wishes. Um, During the first stage of labour, mobility mobility is generally encouraged. Mum doesn't have to be lying down unless it's, of course, medically advised. Standing, it is thought that in some cases that standing does help with delivery. Um, But I guess it depends on mum's comfort. And, 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 and really, that's it. I mean, the, yeah. the patient that, the person that we're really centering everything around is mum and mum's comfort. Yeah. I mean, that's something that, you know, you all should know. Yeah. Um, it is important to note that today we are also going to be discussing normal labour. Yeah. And we will have a different episode on abnormal labour. So there are some things that we'll mention today and, you know, we'll largely gloss over, but we will be putting out an episode on abnormal labour as well. Yeah. So first thing we wanted to go through is... Um, During our case study, we talked about how Lucy is a 25-year-old G1P0. So what this means is gravita and parity. So gravita really refers to the number of times that a woman has been pregnant. Um, And interestingly enough, Evan pulled out this fun fact that in Latin, G actually means pregnant. 
Mm-hmm. And parity is a number of times that a woman has given birth to a fetus whose gestational age is above 24 weeks. And that is regardless of if the child was alive or stillborn. And in Latin, that also means to give birth or bring forth. So what we'll do is we'll go through a couple of examples because I get how that can be a bit daunting. So G1P0 is basically a woman that's pregnant and not had a previous pregnancy. Evan, did you want to tell us what G3P2 means, for example? Yeah, so G3P2 means that a woman has had three pregnancies, two births, and that the woman is currently pregnant. Yep, beautiful. And what about twins? So twins are very interesting. So this is commonly referred to as G2P1 plus 1. So this is a woman who has had twins and she's also given birth to twins. Yeah, pretty cool. And I suppose there are some other terms that we um, wanted to find early as well. So, and you might hear these being thrown around when you go to your antenatal visits or when you're on the labor ward. So the first one is nulliparous or uh, colloquially known as nullip. Um, and this is a woman who has never given birth previously. Yeah, and then we have our multiparous woman or our multip, which has, which is a woman who has given birth before, uh, whether that be one baby or whether that be more than one. Yeah, yeah. great. And now I suppose we start to get on to the mechanism of labour. Um, and this is very complicated, but we're going to try and, and walk all our listeners through it. One of the kind of main umbrella terms or, or things to kind of get across is this thought of the three Ps. Um, and the three Ps are power, passenger and passage. And this really tells us about how birth will progress um, and why certain things are happening and what contributes to the actual birth process. So let's start off with power. Yeah, so do you want to talk to us a little bit about power? Yeah, sure. So power basically is made up of two things. Um, Firstly, it's the uterine contraction. So the uterus being that really strong muscular organ that's aiming to, you know, really contract um, and expel the fetus, allow the fetus to transition from, you know, being inside the womb to coming outside the body. Um, And the contractions can be um, mediated and changed by a number of factors. But this is more, again, moving into abnormal pregnancy. I suppose the main thing to know in normal pregnancy is that the uterus is a muscle and it contracts. Um, The second thing to know about is maternal effort. Um, And this basically just means how mum is pushing, um, how hard she's pushing um, to be able to, again, um, give birth um, to the fetus that's in the womb. Yeah. Um, and this can be, again, changed by a lot of factors. You know, how long the labour is, because um, as anyone would know, you know, if you go for a run outside, the longer you run, the more tired you get and the harder it is to keep running. And this is the same with birth. But also things like, you know, does the mum have an epidural as well, which can change the maternal effort. And this is something that we'll talk about a little bit later. So now I suppose that we've talked about power. Um, Kayla, can you tell us a little bit about passenger? Yeah, so our passenger essentially talks about our little baby inside. (laughs) So our baby is our passenger and we need to get baby out. So a couple of things that affect, that can be affected by the passenger is of course the size of baby's head, the way that baby is presenting. Um, So the first part that engages with the maternal pelvis could either be the head, the brow or the breech or breech presentation, which I think is something that we've heard about, but I'll get Evan to talk, talk a little bit more about that. But presentation is really important because it tells us how easy the baby will be to deliver. So it allows the obstetrician and the midwife to think about strategies they will need if labor becomes complicated. And one of these ways is through breach presentation. So Evan, do you want to tell us a bit about breach? Yeah. So breach presentation just basically means that instead of baby coming out head first, uh, babies decided to flip things up a little bit, quite literally, um, and come out legs first. And this is a labor that you know can become complicated and there are certain complications that can arise from breach but it also means that 
the obstetrician and the midwife really need to come together and think of a few more strategies of how they're going to deal with that birth. It's also really important when a baby is born breached to think about how we're going to look after bub after the actual birth has taken place. So for example, there's a condition called DDH, which stands for developmental dysplasia of the hip, which basically just means that baby has a higher risk of having dislocations of the hip um, and, and having a breach having a breach birth is a risk factor for this condition. So it's something for the pediatricians to really keep an out, eye out um, and to do you know the proper in investigations after birth, things well, like an ultrasound. Yeah, um, and the other thing is, well, postnatally we do this dis in spite of which way baby is actually born. So either normal or abnormal, we always do these, um, not necessarily the ultrasounds, but what's the move called? <laughs> it's known as the Barlow and the Ordolani examination technique. So basically what this means is you can imagine um, if you're holding um, baby's calves when baby's lying on their back, um, you're holding the calves um, in towards the body so the knees are touching. Um, and you're going to be pushing backwards. That's the first yeah. thing you're going to do. And you're going to feel if the hips dislocate or not. Um, then you're going to bring the knees away from the body, almost into a frog-like position. And then with the back of your hands near baby's buttocks, you'll be pushing upwards yeah. to see if you can you know, replace the actual dislocation. Um, and this test is really looking for DDH or developmental dysplasia of the hip. Yeah, perfect. So as we were talking before, presentation is really important. And the easiest route for baby is if the head is well flexed. So the reason why flexation and extension is so important is because we want to make sure the smallest diameter of baby's head is entering the smallest diameter of the pelvis. Yeah, that and, and let's talk about the pelvis as well quickly. So when we think about the pelvis, we think about the pelvic outlet and the pelvic inlet. inlet. The easiest way, I suppose, for all of our listeners to imagine this is if you had an upside down triangle. So at the top of the pelvis, you have quite a lot of space. Yep. And as you approach the pelvic outlet, uh, being the vagina, you get less and less space. So as that happens, we obviously need baby to be making certain movements or to be in certain positions so that the smallest part of the pelvis is engaged with the smallest part of baby's head. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways to do that is through flexion. So if you want to imagine, Evan's got a really good analogy for this, but if you want to imagine like bending your head forward and touching your chin to your chest, that's essentially what baby does. And that leaves a diameter of approximately nine and a half centimeters. And then if you want to compare that to something like extension, or as I said before, a brow presentation, we have back of baby's head touching baby's back. So essentially like looking up at the sky, that's technically hyperextension, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and I suppose when we have this extended presentation, that makes the diameter of the head approximately 13 centimeters. So we're looking at about an extra three and a half centimeters, which is Huge. a big difference. It's about 40%. And um, when you think about it, and given that the pelvic outlet is a fixed distance as well. Did you just come up with that off the top of your head? I did. I hate you so much. <laughs> so I guess next, let's just move on a little bit now and think a little bit about an analogy. So why is baby's head flexed? It's because the baby wants to take the path of least resistance through birth. So really, baby just wants to come out as easy as possible. And when you think about it, you do the exact same thing when you put on a jumper. So if you think about the jumper as the pelvic outlet, as you're putting the jumper over your head and putting your head through the jumper, you normally bring your chin towards your chest. And this is because it's it's a lot easier to put on the jumper. If you imagine trying to you know look up at the ceiling when you're putting on that jumper, it just becomes a lot harder. And you just normally don't do that because it just doesn't make sense. And in the same way, this is what baby does. Yeah. 
Beautiful. So another term to define really early is engagement. So as we said before, the largest diameter of the fetal head enters the largest diameter of the maternal pelvis. And the level of engagement of baby is defined in relation to an anatomical landmark, and this is called the ischial spines. So basically what we have is if the head is at the level of the spines, it's said to be at station zero. Yeah. Anything below the spines is a plus because that means it's closer to the outlet. And then anything above the spines is a minus because it's it's essentially further away. Yeah, and I suppose a really like good way to think about this as well is it gives an obstetrician or a midwife a really easy way to kind of communicate this with another obstetrician or another midwife. And it's really it's really using a landmark as a way to describe where baby is. It's kind of like if you're meeting your friend at a corner somewhere, um, you might, you know, say, I'm this far away from the corner mackers. Um, and in a way the ischial <laughs> and in a way the ischial spines are like that. It's it's just a fixed landmark that allows us to determine where baby is. I'm here all week. No. <laughs> Um, so I guess another thing that's really important to talk about is positioning of the baby. This is going to be quite complicated. This is definitely one of the hardest things to get. I think. Yeah. And I think the easiest way to do this is to actually get out a pen and paper. So I'm going to actually do this with you guys. Um, if you want to join in and do it as well, please, please go ahead. Um, it will make your understanding a lot easier. So what I want you to do is draw a circle. Circle is the top of baby's head and we are essentially looking at baby's head from a bird's eye view. At the top of your circle, I want you to write the word posterior. And at the bottom of the circle, I want you to write the word anterior. So posterior is the baby's back or the back of baby's head, but towards baby's back and anterior, we're imagining baby's face being on that side. Draw a line from posterior to, to anterior. So, so really a line down the middle of that circle yep. that you've drawn. Yep. And that's called a sagittal suture. So now what I want you to do is from left to right, separate that circle into thirds. Mm -hmm. Yep. And once you've done that, so firstly, the line that is closer to the posterior side, that is known as a lambdoidal suture. The line that is closer to the anterior side, that is, that is considered the coronal suture. At the point where the lines meet, the one that is closer to the posterior, so where the lambdoidal suture and the sagittal suture meet, draw a big circle there and do the same thing with the coronal suture and the sagittal suture. Draw a big circle. These are known as fontanelles. Okay, and they are really important anatomical landmarks that midwives and obstetricians look for. The one that is closer to the posterior, that one is known as the posterior fontanelle or the occiput. And the one that is closer to the anterior, that is known as the anterior fontanelle or the bregma or the sinciput. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we're talking about OA and occiput anterior, what we're talking about is the occiput in relation to mum's pubic synthesis or in relation to mum's belly, if that helps you imagine it. What essentially this means is that when we are in an OA position, the occiput is along mum's pubic symphysis, which means the baby's back is along mum's tummy and baby's face is along mum's sacrum. Mm -hmm. Are we all good with that? That makes sense. Beautiful. All right, one of the male positions that we can have is OP and that means occiput posterior. So what we're gonna do is essentially completely reverse that scenario. So now the occiput is against the sacrum, baby's back is along mum's back, and the face is closer to mum's pubic symphysis. And, and during occiput posterior presentations, often mum can have a lot more back pain. 
Um, and that's really because baby's back is rubbing up against, against mom's yeah, back. Yeah, it can be really, really painful, mm-hmm. like really painful. And I suppose why the anterior and posterior fontanelles are important is because we can feel them. But mo- most importantly, they feel different. So the anterior fontanelle is larger and it's diamond shaped, but the posterior fontanelle is smaller and it's triangular f- shaped. And we actually feel for the location of the posterior fontanelle. And the thing is, is that if you do feel... So imagine yourself while flexed, so your chin is touching your chest. You are going to be able to feel the landmark of the occiput. Mm -hmm. Same way, if I'm looking up to the sky, I'm more likely to feel something that is towards the anterior of my head. So it's really important to determine how baby is positioned and etc etc and presentation and whatnot and another really important thing as well is if any of you at home are sitting there trying to feel your fontanelles uh, you you won't because (laughs) because you don't have fontanelles so this is something that baby has and and as baby grows the fontanelles will disappear yeah so let's let's give a little bit more uh, example um a little uh, bit more example a little bit more example sorry let's just give (laughs) (laughs) let's just give one more example because we've talked about occiput anterior so We've talked about occiput anterior and we've talked about occiput posterior, but there's also transverse. And this uh, really means that baby's looking to one side. So for example, if we said ROT or right occiput transverse, this means that baby's posterior fontanelle is facing the right side of mum. And this means that baby's looking towards the left. And really, this just gives us a universal way of saying the direction that the baby is facing. And this can be understood by anyone in any country. Yeah. So when you think about it, ROT or LOT, that circle that we just drew, instead of drawing the sagittal suture from anterior to posterior, just imagine it being left to right. Yeah. If that's, yeah. Exactly. Now, the fontanelles are also important for another reason, and that's because of molding. What is molding? So really, molding is a natural process that allows the diameter of baby's head to get even smaller so that it can fit through the pelvic outlet. And that's really done by the bones sliding together. Um, and closer and sometimes it can even overlap and this is normal Um, however in some abnormal cases we can have severe molding and severe molding really tells us that something is going wrong here that there's an obstruction with mum or that there's a disproportion or really a difference in the size between baby's head and mum's pelvis and medically we call this cephalopelvic disproportion so cephalo meaning head Pelvic being the pelvis and a disproportion being a difference or a discrepancy. I was going to say, please explain that because that is a big word. (laughs) So Evan, did you want to tell us a bit about the passage? So we've talked about the passenger and we've talked about power, but now the last P is passage. Sure. And the last P is very important, especially in a nullip. So really passage, we're talking here about the birth canal. And the birth canal is really made up of two things. It's the muscles that are on the pelvic floor um, and it's the bony pelvis. And these all contribute to making the pelvic outlet. Another really important thing, especially in an oliparous woman, is the perineal muscles. Um, And the perineal muscles are really the muscles that surround the vagina and they provide resistance in an oliparous woman who's never given birth before. And it can actually extend the time that the woman is pushing. Again, I suppose just to summarize these three Ps being passage, passenger, and power thank you (laughs) when one of them is abnormal then it's likely that the labor process will be abnormal yeah unfortunately also with the the perineal muscles i'm assuming a lot of women have heard about the perineum before because some women have experienced tears some women may have heard of the word episiotomy thrown around so did you want to tell us a little bit about the perineum in itself So the perineum is located between the vagina and the anus. Yep. And really, again, so the perineum 
provides resistance. It's an anchoring point. And so sometimes when the woman's giving birth, there's only so much that the perineum can stretch without starting to tear. One of the medical interventions that we can do is something called an episiotomy. And in labor, this is known as the medial episiotomy, which basically means where we're going to cut. I guess if you think about it, think about um, the vagina and the anus being a clock face. So the anus being at six o'clock and the vagina being at 12 o'clock at about seven o'clock is where we're going to do the cut. So almost at a 45 degree angle. And the reason why we do that is really to prevent things like third or fourth degree tears. Yeah. And they're bad because they can affect continence, really. So going to the bathroom can be tricky and it can also increase your risk of pelvic organ prolapse at a later date and these are all things that we'll cover um, extensively you know in, in their own episode, episode because they do need their own episode to cover yeah so i suppose next let's move on now to the stages of labor yeah so the stages of labor are essentially broken up into three different stages and again that might be something that people have heard about before however before the three stages actually begin women may also may experience some practice contractions essentially and they are called Braxton Hicks. The difference between Braxton Hicks contractions and normal contractions or contractions that you experience throughout the three stages are there are no cervical changes. These contractions are quite irregular and if we're being honest here they're nowhere near as strong as as real contractions. And this is really... Generally because they're not productive. Yeah and during the Braxton Hicks this is really the uterus stretching before it's marathon. Yeah like a a practice. Yeah, Yeah yeah. Now let's go into stage one of labor. So stage one is further divided into two stages. The first one is called a latent phase. So here we have some painful contractions but the contractions are quite irregular And the dilation of the cervix or the diameter of the cervix is less than five centimeters. Usually during the latent stage, we encourage women to stay at home um, until they get to the next part, which is the active. And it's really just to keep women as calm and relaxed as possible before they have to go into hospital and before things start to get really real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then next we have the active phase. So really here we have four to eight centimeters of cervical dilation. We also come across something called effacement. So effacement, Kayla, can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, so basically when we're talking about effacement, we're talking about the cervix. So the cervix is normally about, what, three and a half to four centimetres in length. And it's a thick-walled muscular structure. What happens with effacement is it essentially goes from this muscular structure to a thin, a very thin paper-like structure, essentially, that allows things like dilation to occur. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if you imagine trying to stretch a thick-walled, muscle yeah it, it's not going to go very no well. it, would, it would probably tear yeah so what we do it well, not what we do but what our bodies do and me speaking as a woman obviously what our bodies do is it thins out completely and then it allows what it, it allows for it to stretch yeah and so during this active phase we get this full stretching of the cervix so fully effaced the contractions also become more powerful and you might hear something like three in ten which basically means that you'll have greater than three contractions in a 10 minute time and these contractions will last for greater than 45 seconds. Should also point out, this is quite arbitrary, but if dilation occurs at one centimetre an hour, we generally say that it's going at a good rate. Anything less than one centimetre an hour in a two hour period is considered abnormal. And this is referred to as prolonged labour. Yeah, and it's also important to note that these numbers are for generally more for uh, null lips than they are for multips. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about stage two, and stage two is really where all the fun begins. <laughs> at the and the reason why I say that is because at the end of stage two, you get to see your baby. 
But stage two is really the period where we have uh, a 10 centimeter dilation and 100% effacement up to birth of baby. Uh, and this generally takes four hours from that point of 10 centimeter dilation to birth. And that's again, more for nullips, yeah? So again, this phase can be split into two phases, uh, similar to that of stage one. So we have the passive phase where we have our full cervical dilation, mother does not have the urge to push and passive descent is really occurring. Um, this is more like the, not really, but more like the relaxation before we're about to make our way home. Mm -hmm. So our active phase is our need to push. I cannot say this word, please Evan, take over from this point because it's done via a certain, yeah, no, you go. So <laughs> the way that this is generally done is something called the Valsalva maneuver. Yeah, so essentially in this maneuver, mum will hold her breath and push downwards, kind of like a like bearing down. Um, so Evans told me before that he's seen a midwife holding towel and asking women to hold her breath and pull the towel away from the midwife uh, to encourage a strong push. So if you try to do that, that's the kind of pushing that is really required. And really, we should say this fancy word Valsalva is, is really something that women have been doing for centuries. Yes. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a fancy word that like even I hadn't heard of it before. They've probably said it and it's I just never remembered. <laughs> so flexion and descent of the fetal head occurred during this period. And it is during this stage a woman may need things like an episiotomy that we were talking about before. During this period, again, mum does not have to be lying down flat. Uh, we can, I've, I know I've personally seen women uh, in a squatting position, on all fours, whatever mum finds most comfortable, unless, unless it is medically advised that women don't do that. And one of those examples is, again, um, an epidural. Mm -hmm. yeah. And really at the end of stage two, mum gets to meet a beautiful baby. Yeah. And then we move to stage three, which is the delivery of the placenta. We are going to stop there in terms of stage three because the placenta and the delivery of a placenta is so important uh, that we're, I'll, we're going to leave a whole episode for that. Cause, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, there are also a lot of things that are going on and around you during your labor. And these are something, these are things that we think are really important, things that we want to really flag just so that you can understand, the listeners can understand a little bit of what to expect. So I suppose the first thing to talk about is vital signs. Yeah. So some of the vitals that we take are our pulse, which is hourly. Um, temperature and blood pressure are usually every four hourly. And contractions. Um, I know, don't ask Evan because he did it like once. <laughs> I did it every shift. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, contractions are measured every 30 minutes for a 10 minute period. And we look for the length of contractions and the strength of contractions. And uh, I understand that a lot of women are in pain, but it is a really good opportunity to sit there and actually get to know your, your caregiver for yeah that time i think you've told me like some of the most bonding experiences that you've had in terms of you know being a midwifery student um, and the woman that's giving birth was during that period of time yeah it's it's really nice because i mean you've got your hand on her tummy you're sitting really close to each other and yeah you just talk unless she's in the middle of a contraction <laughs> then she definitely doesn't want to talk no. to you <laughs> Um, and then the next thing we were going to talk about is the vaginal exam and this is generally performed every four hours this can be a really uncomfortable exam for a woman, um, as a lot of women would know. All care should be taken to ensure proper obtained consent is uh, proper consent is obtained, and that her privacy and dignity are absolutely maintained. It absolutely. is absolutely critical. Um, Evan, did you want to talk 
to us a little bit about the exam. Sure. So the examination is done using the index and middle fingers of a gloved hand. So the fingers are passed to the top of the vagina and to the cervix. And here, either the midwife or the obstetrician is really looking for a number of things. Uh, first of all is the length of the cervix. So usually the cervix is about three centimeters at 36 weeks and it'll gradually shorten. Um, the position of the cervix, so where the cervix is. Is it anterior, so closer to the belly? Is it in the middle or is it posterior? Um, the degree of effacement, and that's again how thin the cervix is. The consistency, so the effacement and the consistency go together. A really good way to think about it is if the cervix is 100% effaced, the consistency will be more like your earlobe, whereas if the cervix was 0% effaced, it would more feel like the top of your nose, the tip of your nose, more cartilaginous. Then we're also feeling for dilation, so the diameter of the cervix, the presenting part, so can we feel baby's head, can we feel baby's leg, um, the station. So this is again done by seeing where the head is in relation to the ischial spines. And the way this is done is, so if everyone would get out their right hand, if you have your index finger pointing upwards and your right finger pointing towards the left side, your index finger will be feeling baby's head and your right finger will be palpating for the ischial spine. I'm pointing it towards Evan because he's a loser. Thank you. <laughs> and so this will tell us where baby is in relation to the ischial spines, which is a really important landmark. Another thing that we'll be feeling for as well is molding. So if we can't feel the fontanelles because too much molding has occurred, then this is telling us that labor is abnormal and there might be prolonged labor that's going on here or there might be a mechanical obstruction. Another thing that we'll be looking at as well is the membranes. So have the membranes ruptured and what color is the fluid? Are there large amounts of fluid? And this is really what we want to see. If the fluid is heavily blood-stained or meconium-stained, then that's telling us that something's going long, wrong in the labor or that the labor is prolonged. So I suppose, what is meconium? So this is a thick green substance that usually lines the baby's intestines. It's almost tar-like. And this is the first poo generally after birth. But if baby gets stressed inside the uterus, baby can poo inside the uterus. Um, and then that meconium will mix with the amniotic fluid, and this is called um, meconium lycor. Yep. And this just basically means that the meconium has mixed with the amniotic fluid. You might have even heard just mech. Yeah, just yeah, mech. Half and, mech. And this is yep. really an indication of how stressed bub is. Yeah. Um, what we also do when we do a V is discuss the orientation of the baby. I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but we, again, as I said before, we do this via the fontanelles, and we do this by going by the fontanelles and then looking at the suture lines and feeling for them, because you can feel that. Um, again, they do close, and you can see that on an adult skull, um, you'll see remnants of the suture bone. Yeah. The other thing we wanted to talk about are epidurals. So epidurals generally do increase your labor by about one hour. It usually does require that the woman have a catheter in. Uh, women cannot go to the bathroom once they've had an once they've had an epidural. If there are issues in labor or the labor is of high risk, a CTG can be performed. Okay, and what a CTG is, is it's essentially a machine that, so midwife will feel around for baby's heartbeat. One machine will be tethered to you there. And then there's another one that is sat at your fundus and that is to measure your contractions. And that is really to see what baby is doing in response to your contractions. This will all be discussed in another episode, specifically when we go through abnormal labor. Yeah. So now I suppose we're moving to the final part of this podcast and this is probably again kind of a really hard thing to think about but we're trying to gonna we're, we're going to try to make this as easy as possible for you and this is really the cardinal movements of labor and there are eight and this is almost the dance that baby goes through from the uterus till the time 
that baby's delivered. Yeah. So let's start off um, with the eight steps. The first one is engagement, and we've already talked about this. So this is really when baby enters the maternal pelvis, and generally the baby will enter in a transverse position, so either looking at mum's left or right side. And this is really baby being a little bit lazy and taking advantage of the pelvis at its widest point. Yeah, but aren't we all? That's very true. <laughs> and in a nullet woman, generally engagement happens, happens around 37 weeks. So following engagement, then we have descent. And this really occurs as a result of those uterine contractions. And this occurs in the passive and active stages of labor. Then we move on to flexion. So now baby's really starting to get into a narrow spot. And it's starting to approach the narrower regions of the pelvis. And the pelvis forces the baby's head to flex. So the chin to touch the chest. This is a passive movement generally, and it's caused by those surrounding structures. Again, the objective is to make the diameter of the fetal head as small as possible. Think about that jumper um, analogy that I gave earlier. Yeah. The next step is internal rotation. So because of the orient, so the orientation of the fetus is now in OA or occiput anterior, which is best in terms of diameter of the head, as previously discussed. So this is also achieved by the levator ani muscles, which guide the fetus into internal rotation. The next step is extension. So remember before we were talking about flexion being chin to chest. Extension is back of baby's head to to the back of baby. So what we have is the occiput is actually moving under the pubic symphysis of mum. So baby, imagine baby's looking under the dire- uh, looking at the direction of mum's bum. And imagine yourself putting on this jumper, yeah? We flex our head to put the jumper on. And then as soon as the jumper is over that part of our chin, we're like, ah, oh, and we look up to the sky and we're like, oh, I've got it on. Well, that's what happens with the extension. So it basically goes under uh, the pubic symphysis of mum. As the back of baby's head escapes from the pubic brain, the head begins to extend. The head then starts to descend the vul- to distend the vulva, otherwise known as crowning, or the ring of fire. You might have <laughs> you might have heard that thrown yeah. around a bit as well. Now, next we move on to restitution. Restitution is really a really slight rotation of baby's head. So as the head starts to cross the outlet, the head wants to align with the shoulders, and the shoulders haven't been delivered yet. Moving on then into external rotation, baby's head starts to face mum's inner thigh and baby's head further rotates. So now occiput is in the transverse position. This is what allows that anterior shoulder to pass under the pubic bone. And the anterior shoulder is def- um, usually the hardest um, part of the... Um, so when we compare the anterior and posterior shoulders, the anterior is usually a little bit more tricky to deliver. Yeah, so because it is a little bit more tricky to deliver, we usually help out a little bit at this stage um so this stage is known as a delivery of shoulders and body and even though it can occur on its own we do apply a little bit of traction and the way we do that is by gently putting pulling the fetal head downwards and if you can imagine us pulling fetal head downwards you can imagine that the shoulder that is closest to mom's pubic symphysis is a bit easier to pull out and once that's done we will put our fingers under the anterior shoulder and deliver the posterior shoulder in one fluid motion and the rest of the body as well. And what that allows for is that movement means that the baby is essentially moving in the direction of mum, in the direction of mum's face. Yeah, so it's a lot easier for, well, it's done naturally anyway, physiologically, but it means that we can d- directly put baby on mum's belly straight away. Yeah, and it's that's the best. That's the best part of the eight stages. Absolutely. <laughs> Right at the end, mum gets to have some skin-to-skin contact with baby, which is so important. Yeah. Do things like have that first hour. Baby's usually more alert in the first hour. 
um, try do things like feeding for the first time and it's yeah best part best part so yeah that really concludes labor so we're going to end the case here so following a labor which lasted 12 hours lucy gave birth to a beautiful baby weighing in at nine pounds she required an episiotomy during labor which was sutured and is now beginning to heal she's excited she's excited to start her new family with her wife anna it's really exciting (laughs) i hate you so much i'm pulling you up on all of it today So thank you guys for listening. That was the end of our podcast in terms of um, content. So again, you can find us on Linktree. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look up www.linktree forward slash podstetrics, you'll be able to find all of our social media there, including Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I said them all, yeah. Oh, and also streaming services such as Spotify, Apple, Apple Music, Music and, and CastBox. Box. It's CastBox, I always Good forget. Job. I got it this time. <laughs> but really with our social media, you can find us anywhere at podstetrics. Yeah, so that's about it. Um, I guess the, first, the last thing to say is um, I hope you guys are all recovering well from your lockdown for those of you in Melbourne. Take care. Take care, guys. And stay safe. I'm Kayla. And I'm Evan. See you later. Look after yourselves. Bye.